HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special recording, uh, Cider Sessions, here in June 2014 in the back room of Jimmy's Number 43. We've got uh, Eleanor Legere with Eden Ice Cider and uh, Kevin Hill from Malton Mold. And John Hall is writing a great book about cider. So we we were drinking the Whetstone uh, Cider Works, the the Orchard Queen, uh, which is from Vermont, and that was part of the the uh, Ciderwick event at Jimmy's number 43 this weekend. And, uh, Eleanor, you're kind of guiding us through. You, you went into our walk, and that's one of the fun parts of today. We, we had several ciders here. And uh, wh- what's the second one that you picked? So the second one I picked was the Redbird, which you had. Uh, re- they were down here uh, yesterday. Um, and I know Chris LaHote at um, Serious Drinks, uh, who's their cider writer, um, recommended this one. And I, I loved it um, because uh, it uses a lot of the really interesting cider variety apples and heirloom varieties that make uh, uh, a really distinctive cider. So I'm, I'm excited to be tasting this one today. No, they're, they're, um, uh, Dave Amos is uh, one of the partners of Redbird Orchard Cider, and, and we had a few emails back and forth, and she wasn't able to be here, but I wanted to... S- she basically said, we're lucky to have planted our first trees in 2003, and now we have over 60 varieties of cider and heirloom apples. It makes a huge difference in the type of cider we were able to produce. Before our trees came into production, we began our four-way into cider making with wild apples, a whole other topic for cider makers to discuss. She says in the Finger Lakes, they have orchardists. So they're looking into top working their common, eating apple trees with cider varieties and other things. So she's saying that in the Finger Lakes, they really are growing a lot of, of, of cider trees and they're working as orchardists. And this is kind of what you were saying before. Yeah, and, and in fact, we planted, we have 32 varieties in our um, orchard and the root, the trees, the tree stock that we planted came from the Finger Lakes. So um, there's a 
there are a couple of really good growers there. Um, one in which particular Cummins Nursery, his dad used to do all the um, experimental research for the Cornell Ag Station there. Um, so, uh, so it's true. So cider is is agriculture based. And um, what, what are some of the other cider makers that, that you know of in the Northeast who are starting with the orchard and, and, and really starting to develop that side of their their culture? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the real uh, folks who really started doing it in the late 80s, the earliest ones were wet, um, wet, sorry, West County Cider um, in Coleraine, Massachusetts, um, uh, the Maloney's, um, and then uh, Steve Wood at, um, and Louisa Spencer at Farnham Hill um, and Poverty Lane Orchards in New Hampshire. So the, they, too, they got started, I want to say, in like the late 80s and have been at it a long time and lots of interesting varieties and really great ciders. So is, is it true that there's not enough cider trees in America to make all the cider that we want to drink? <laughs> That's true. Well, there's a lot of cider being made out of, you know, more typical, easy-to-find dessert varieties. And then, of course, um, the large industrial manufacturers are using apple juice concentrate from other countries. So, yeah, it's true. Um, if you're a grower in the United States, the best value you can get for your fruit is to sell it to the grocery store. Um, and cider makers can't offer the same price. So we're looking for... Um, apples that you know aren't as perfectly beautiful, um, um, but then if you're an, a real a real cider maker where you're looking for cider variety apples, those are very rare um, because they don't have a grocery store uh, market. Um, these are apples that you just don't want to eat. They're sweet, but they're really tannic and bitter. So, John Hall, you're you're, you're writing the the next. There's the tasting beer by Randy Mosier doing tasting cider. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned in, in your research for the book? Uh, you know, it, just the, the the wide range of diversity uh, that's out there, and how much uh, the proper blending and fine and and knowing that your cider makers uh, will taste the fruit uh, while it's still on the tree, and a lot of these really uh, owners right are, are difficult to eat uh, or are just darn near impossible. To, it, it's not like what you'd find in the grocery store, but then being able to taste it and to to look at the apples and to understand tannin and acidity and sweetness and then really thinking about proportions of how much of one particular type of apple they want uh, in a cider blend at the end and, and in their final product versus, you know, we want you know, 20% of this and 5% of this and 40% of this and, and really kind of doing the calculations and being able to map it out in their head uh, because they know the fruit. So many of the people who make cider these days, these are farmers. It's not like brewers where uh, they're like chefs, you know, and they can kind of conjure up a, a recipe in their mind and then find the right ingredients to make it work. This is the complete opposite. These are farmers, and these are people who know the land and to know the the, the fruit that they're cultivating and harvesting, and then know uh, just in their gut and from experience what's going to wind up in your glass uh, when when all is said and done. And that's a tremendous skill and something that um, has unfortunately, I think, been lost in the overall culture of our, our of our food culture in the U.S. But that is certainly coming back thanks to cider. You know, talking about growing apples, I mean, why is it that, you know, something like a Honeycrisp is, is so popular in eating apple? And what's different about the, the way they grow those apples and, and what, then the way you guys grow cider apples? Because I don't really even know what cider apples are, and, and I think that, that conversation has gone around too. So, so there are sort of two things wrapped up in there, which is what's the difference between those two apples, and then are there differences in growing practices, and they're kind of independent of each other. But um, like a Honeycrisp, what you're looking for in a great eating apple is something that has really crisp texture, 
So that crisp in the name is really important. Um, and something that may have a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of acidity, but it's refreshing and it's really crisp. That's what people want. Um, a cider apple, you're looking for tannins and aromatic character and great sugar levels. And ap- various types of apples have various degrees of those and, and some acidity. Um, and the uh, main um, difference uh, is it's kind of like the difference between wine grapes and table grapes. Um, wine grapes have much higher sugar than table grapes, and they have much more tannin. They're not great to eat, but they're really important. Those tannins are really important for wine. So you, you never find wine grapes in your grocery store. There's a good reason for that. And you will never find cider apples in your grocery store unless it's a really special little farmer stand in Vermont <laughs> or New Hampshire. What are crab apples? I mean, I'm learning that there's apples that are good for cider, but... So, Are so, there apples that aren't good for cider? Um, of, of course. Uh, so crab apple just refers to the size of the fruit, typically. Um, I think what white people say, oh, crab apples are good for cider, is that many of them are grown for um, ornamentally and not for the quality of the flavor. And so a lot of them will have a lot of tannin in them. Um, or some interesting character because they're not grow- you're not you haven't been typically growing crab apples for dessert fruit, um, so it will have more of the, some of them will have more of that character. But in and of itself, crab apple by itself doesn't mean it's a good apple for cider. Um, what you're really looking for is, as you taste an apple, right? You're making that evaluation that John talked about of what's the tannic character of this? Is it really bitter? Is it got lots of um, you know astringency to it? Um, does it have some body to the flavor, or is it really light? Does it have density? Is it sweet? If you have a really sweet apple, it's going to be heavier. The same size apple, if it's much sweeter, is going to actually be heavier in your hand. And we're drinking the, we're drinking the red bird here. Oh, yeah, so, we've got to talk about this because yeah, this yeah, is fantastic. Red bird orchard, really nice. star really blossom. Like and Kevin from Malt Mold. Kevin, is this the kind of thing that you'd pour at uh, Malt and Mold? Absolutely. We just got the star blossom in this week, as a matter of fact, but we've been carrying... I, I hesitate to say this, but I think we're the first retailer to have um, Redbird on the shelves. So you have, you have like such a small shop, and, and you carry so many things. How, how do you? What's your philosophy? Because you're you're just selling great ciders and beer, and it's it's the most unique shop in New York City. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, it is if you could see it. It's, it's now now small. I'm blushing, Jimmy. You just want to go there and taste things, and hopefully buy things, and hopefully buy. But you know, come and taste. We don't we don't require any purchases. Um, yeah, Redbird was introduced to me by one of our neighbors who happened to know the owners. And so I connected with Diva, and they shipped down a case. It was brilliant. And I can be as easy as that. If you have something interesting to sell me, I'll absolutely I'll try it, put it up on the shelves. And then if we can get you to come down and do a tasting for my customers, that's you know even better. So you're a bottle shop, but I think of you more as a tasting shop. How do you taste people on ciders? I know you have, you have drafts. Right for beer. Yeah, and but tell we us about the definitely. philosophy. How you tasting people and, and how that works in your business? Sure, and um, well, the philosophy is that we want people to come in. Uh, we do it generally on Saturday afternoons from three to six uh, during the you know summer months, and uh, we want people to just come in and try stuff so that when they're on their weekday, when they're coming home from work, and they're not really thinking, but they want something that. They, they've had the opportunity to actually try it, and they can come in and make a, an educated purchase as opposed to coming in and listening to me tell them why I think they should buy something or try and guess from what they're looking for what I think is actually going to fit. So uh, that's why I, I, I love that description, the word tasting shop rather than a bottle shop. It I'm really going to steal it's that from you. It's a tasting shop. 
But uh, how do you do it? I mean, you walk in, you've got some draft beers. Yeah, so we have eight tap lines for beer, and we've put cider up. We have um, alcohol kombucha up every now and again. So, you know, we don't – we try not to be, uh, I guess, beer snobs in that regard. Uh, we'll put some open a bottle aside and let people taste it. Well, I'm not just legally allowed to do that. So our tasting events are actually a big deal for me. When I can get somebody to come down, they've got a tasting permit that allows them to sample out so to my customers. So the supplier has to have a tasting. Right. It's um. It's really. It's a. It's a huge benefit to to us down there at the shop and to my customers. Uh, that they would come and spend the time to do that. And so we do it on a weekly basis, and, you know, we're booked up through the end of October. So the suppliers also seem to get into it, and they seem to enjoy coming down and interacting with the customers. It's a little different from maybe some of the bigger um, grocery stores or even drug stores on the Upper West Side where people are just coming in and grabbing samples and walking away. There's, there's an interaction and education and conversation going on. And you're next to, a, there's a great bar next to you called Eastwood that you introduced me to. Do you guys ever do things together? We have. Um, we did, uh, well, during Liquid Lent, we, uh, during the, the 40 days of Lent, uh, we always had a Belgian beer that the monks would be drinking to get themselves through the fasting period. And on two different occasions, we had a, a tasting first of one brand. We do three or four different styles at my shop, and then for two hours you go next door, and the brand rep would be there tasting out three or four different styles from the same brewery, and uh, continue the conversation, but actually sit there and drink a pint of it or a, a, a goblet of it, if you will. That was a great event. You, you always do. It's really a great place. It's the Tasting Shop, Malton Mold. You should change your title because you do a great job of it. And we're still hanging out here. Jimmy's number 43. Uh, we're just wrapping up Ciderwick. We've got a dinner tonight. We're going to go through the menu a little bit. Ellen, Eleanor uh, from Eden Ice Cider, we went in the back earlier, and she picked out some cider. So what, what is – I know that uh, Corey from Farnham Hill is coming down, so we're going to feature a Farnham Hill. We're going to feature at least one of yours. What were the other ciders that, that we tasted this week and that you think I should include in the dinner? Uh, well, we've got a uh, Whetstone cider here from uh, Jason uh, MacArthur in southern Vermont. So uh, cheers for my home state. Um, and that is uh, a wonderful cider. Um, got a slight bit of sweetness to it that you wouldn't even perceive as sweetness, but it just brings out the fruit. It's very citrusy, summery, lightly carbonated. It's beautiful. And then uh, we picked out the Redbird again because that's also made with real cider apples. And I just got to read you the label on this because, uh, you know, I read, I read it and I was like, this is awesome. They have um, brown snout, um, dabinet, porter's perfection, um, Golden Russet, Benet Rouge, Yarlington Mill, and then they just, like me, I do this too, 47% mixed heirlooms because there's just so many in there I can't give you the exact proportions. Um, so names you would never see in a grocery store, but uh, a really great cider apples, and this and it's a spectacular cider. And like many good products, this is probably only available in specialty shops and, and restaurants, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's... Um, uh, the, the price points on Orchard Bay ciders are definitely higher. Um, and just to draw a comparison, the statistic I like to talk about is water, which is the primary ingredient in beer and in some um, you know, commercial industrial type ciders, is you buy that as a producer at two cents a gallon. Um, if you want to buy locally grown cider variety apples and press them and make juice out of them, that's going to be at least $4 a gallon. It could be higher. So that's a huge, I mean, more than orders of magnitude difference. John, um, you know, working on your new book, Taste, Taste Cider? Tasting Cider. Tasting Cider. And if you don't know, it's the, based on tasting beer. Tasting beer published. by Randy Mosher, story publishing. It'll be out uh, sometime in 2015, but it's going to be well worth the wait. 
tell you, we've been drinking ciders all weekend. And, you know, I, I, my, in truth, we've done a few cider shows in the past. Uh, we had Tom Oliver from, from England on once. We've had Steve Wood on a couple times. Uh, we had Greg Hall from Virtue. Uh, this is the this is the first weekend where I've really sunk my teeth into cider. I think partly because we really picked what we wanted. You know, it wasn't like we were just being sold from a distributor. What we, you know, the choices are are, are limited if if you don't go beyond beyond what's available. You know, and and I, I have been frustrated by a lot of the more mainstream ciders that I've seen out there. And you know, John was talking about them being gate, gateway ciders, but I I personally feel that we really need to talk to and, and, and emphasize the, the quality products, which you're saying are or, orchard-based, and some of us have tried to say it, it is real cider. So we're, we're just getting started on the show. We're here at Ciderwick, Jimmy's number 43. We've got a couple other special guests coming on, too. We're drinking a lot of good ciders, and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special pre-record June 2014. Jimmy Carboni at Jimmy's number 43 in the back room. This is our Cider Wick uh, celebration all weekend. We've been doing tastings with special Northeastern cider makers, including Alan Leger of Eden Ice Cider. We had the guys from Redbird Down, Orchard Hill. Uh, some names you've never heard of, and we hadn't either until this weekend. It was a great chance to, to really meet a lot of new uh, people making cider, and we're trying to help define what is cider. There's people throwing out the word real cider and, and orchard base, and, and we've been having those conversations, and we'll have a lot more of those leading up to uh, Cider Week New York this year in October, which is really was what brought so many of us together uh, three or four years ago. So, uh, Eleanor, we're going to have a quick conversation. You, you were known as Eden Ice Cider, and you came out with an aperitif. And now you've got uh, the launch of a, of a dry sparkling cider, which I've really enjoyed this weekend. So tell us how you started with, with the ice cider and how you moved to the, the dry sparkling. Sure. Well, we're located five miles from the Canadian border, um, right across the border from Quebec uh, in northern Vermont. And so our terroir, so to speak, is um, lots of really cold weather. Um, and we're just warm enough to almost grow some apples. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a special climate, and uh, it's a great climate for ice cider. And ice cider was developed in Quebec. We were the first to do it on this side of the border with a federally approved label back in 2007. Um, so we've been doing that for a while. We're the largest ice cider producer in the country, which isn't saying much because we're still a teeny company. Um, and we've just expanded from there and um, excited to finally launch um, a hard cider. And it was... A long time for us to really figure out um, you know, what kind of hard cider would be representative of who we are, because we're all about what is our terroir. Um, so there are great cider apples in this um, hard cider. They're all grown in Vermont, um, and um, it is barrel-fermented, barrel-aged, and there's a secondary fermentation with Kingston Black cider juice um, that happens in the bottle, so it's naturally sparkling, and my husband... 
hand disgorges every little bottle. So it's a uh, you know harkening back to using natural and traditional methods, um, but wanting to produce a really high quality um, uh, drinkable cider in the same. Kevin from Montmole is pouring it for us. You can hear him pour it. It's brilliant. I love I love your setting. The, the, the standard is really high, Eleanor. I mean, so you said that this you're, you're selling it in a small bottle, uh, so that restaurants can 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 sell it like a bottle of champagne or a half. So, what are some of the other strategies you have about marketing it and the types of clients that are going to buy this product? Because it's not it's it's an expensive cider, and I think that when we talk about real products, orchard based quality products, they're 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 not something you'd buy in a supermarket. That's exactly right. Um, and our you know ice cider is a very expensive product as well. It takes eight pounds of apples to make one half wine bottle size of ice cider, um, and so our customers have traditionally been high end restaurants and and uh, hotels and resorts. Um, and it's we made this hard cider for them because they're often you know white linen tablecloth. They don't really have a lot of beers on draft. They may have some very high end bottled beers, and they know they they're starting to know they should have a cider, um, but they're a little wary of the 750 ml size that you know they might pour a few glasses for somebody and then the rest of it will go flat. Um, so we're giving them an opportunity to have a half bottle. A lot of them will have half bottles of champagne on their wine list. Um, that you can, you know, a couple can share with a first course, or you can have it with one person can have it with their meal. So that was sort of the our orientation to just trying to be really focused on who our customers are and making products that are for those customers. That's great. We have a special guest here too. Uh, he's a writer for Ale Street News. He's based in Boston. He's actually from my hometown of Haverhill, Massachusetts. Uh, Dan Kochakian. Uh, Dan, you know, you cover. Uh, Tell us a little bit what you cover. You cover beer in, in, in Boston, and, and just give us a little background. From Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire, so I get to visit great brew pubs, beer bars, and breweries. Never really got into ciders until recently, but uh, I've just blown away by these three samples we've had here, and I'd love to give a shout-out to Bantam Cider in Cambridge, Mass., uh, two lovely young ladies who are doing a great job, big um, effervescent, uh, apple, fruity, just wonderful ciders. So I'm um, I'm willing to learn more. And then, and so you're covering all of New England. Have you been up to uh, Poverty Lane, Farnham Hill Ciders up in uh, New Hampshire? Or do you think you'll make it up to eat a nice cider? And almost in Canadian border. <laughs> well, we're going up to the Burlington Beer Fest in mid-July, so maybe we can make a side trip. It, it would be great because... Cider is uh, picking up, even in the Boston area, new places are opening up in Salem, Mass., and I think just in the western suburbs. So it, it's going to be on the scene a little more, and like Eleanor was saying, I think restaurants should pick up on it, as well as good beers and uh, Belgian styles and just big, rich things that would go well with food. So you're friends with John Hall, and he's, he's working on his new book, Tasting Cider. I can never get the names of the books down. What, 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 do, you, what do you expect from, from John's book? Because you know him as a writer. Well, I'm hoping I'll get a full spectrum of what to expect for good, good ciders. Uh, yeah, I just uh, based on what he's written for his Vermont book and uh, beer and uh, cooking you know, recipes and things, he's, he's done a good job of uh, showing the full spectrum of, of the whole scene that he covers. He's just one of the fellows here that this is the tail end of the cider work here at Jimmy's number 43. So, uh, John, I know you had some conversations with Eleanor. We got to taste all of her products this weekend. Um, just give us a few comments about Eden Ice Cider and the other ciders they're making. 
Well, you know, the ice cider uh, alone, just the process that goes into it of um, uh, picking apples, letting them uh, mature after you've picked them a little bit so that they take on a lot more characteristics, and then freezing, separating the sugar from uh, from the water uh, inside of the apples themselves. And what you're left with is just this really wonderful uh, sweet liqueur that is just uh, really unlike anything else that I've had um, uh, while researching this. And, and I think that that shows sort of the inventiveness and the spirit uh, that the cider industry has these days, and a lot of these really great depth of flavors that that you can get off of it. Um, you know, I, as far as um, uh, Eleanor and the and the sparkling uh, cider that they have, this dry cider that we're drinking right now, uh, it's really quite wonderful and it's quite nice. And it's really nice to see that more and more uh, restaurants and bars that care about what they're serving are putting good ciders on. So obviously your restaurant, but you know Eleanor's right. You know, having a, a smaller bottle. Uh, where people can serve one or two serving, or, or bars and restaurants can serve one or two servings out of a bottle, uh, and give people a little bit of a chance to to taste different ciders that are out there. That's the way that the industry is going to continue to grow. Is it's going to be taste and see if you like, and if you can understand it a little bit more, if you can understand what it is that you're tasting, uh, it's it's going to mean only good things for the cider makers that are out there these days. It's a fun time. When we talk about like labeling our our finer ciders, you know, giving people, how can they understand what they're buying, you know, before they get to taste it? Well, first you should say you should taste things, and and, and a lot of fine environments you get you get to taste it. But you know, this, what, what are some? Let me, we're gonna edit this out. But what, what are some characteristics or, or qualities that we should add on a label? Because I, I I've talked to meat small scale farmers who, who care about their meat. And they don't think that they necessarily need one one label that says like a real cider or a real beef. They actually want to list things like you know how it was produced and 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 you know the composition of it and all these things. Are there just a few you know line items that you would suggest that that should be listed on quality cider bottles so that the consumer can start understanding? Um, that would be really helpful. Yeah. Um, so we just made that up. I think that's awesome. So things like. Um, how, how sweet is what's in the bottle because there's such a range. Something that, deci- that described that would be really helpful. So is there a current way to, to describe that? Because the, the, resi- like this one label on, on Redbird, it says 0% residual sugar. Does that tell you anything? That would tell me it's dry. Yeah, exactly. Um, and ours says dry on the front, but there are a lot of people who will put dry on something that's actually quite sweet, so that's still problematic. But, some, yeah, percentage residual sugar, that would be helpful. In fact, I should, probably should have done that on mine. Um, uh, how carbonated is it? Is it still? Is it ca- forced carbonated? Is it naturally sparkling because it's been bottle-conditioned? Or method champagne, which is like ours? Um, uh, acidity level would be interesting and helpful, although, you know, when it's in balance with something, it's it, it actually the absolute level probably doesn't matter as much. Um, and I guess the other key thing is the varieties of apples, which is why I really liked the the Redbird label that really talked to you about the actual specific um, some of the specific varieties. And I think I, I think ours just says uh, yeah traditional and heirloom varieties, but it's fifty percent Kingston Black. I could put that on; that would be good. No, I think I think you're right. I think I think it's more information because even in beer, you know, some beers have they list the ABV. But what are, what are what are some things that that are listed on beer labels that give you more information? IBUs, the bitterness. So, in turn, if you could come up with some sort of scientific sweetness quotient, because international bittering units, it's 
I don't know if that's a real thing or not. What, what are some other ways that, that people are able to des describe, you know, on a label what's in a bottle of beer? If you're looking for the label, I, I find that it's somewhat lacking. But as a beer writer, when I interview brewers and they say to me, oh, I'm going to put out an IPA, I want more information. What are the IBUs? What, what is the malt? What are the hops? Beer nerds now, beer geeks, and I'm one of them, we want to know what's the style of hop? What are the malts in there? There, there was a lot of questions this weekend about um, yeast because yeast can make a big difference in how a beer tastes. And that's less the case with cider, um, perhaps because most ciders are fermented at much colder temperatures than beers might typically be, be fermented. Um, but uh, really, in the cider, when you're really making orchard-based cider with real apple juice, cooler fermentations, you're looking for yeast to do its job and to do its job well. So depending upon what your apple juice is and the style that you're making, you're looking for a yeast that's going to make that cider well, not that the yeast is going to add flavor to the cider. Um, and so it's got to ferment cleanly and not throw off, off flavors, um, and it needs to die a graceful death, again, not throwing off, off flavors. And some of the typical things that you can find in ciders that are um, you know, considered off flavors are reductive kinds of flavors that are around you know, sulfur and um, uh, in its worst form sort of rotten egg kinds of characters. Um, uh, and then oxidation can be, if it's too far, it can be too much. Um, so there's certain things, you know, I think when we talk about the orchard-based ciders that are using real fruit that are more expensive, at the same time, it's more expensive. It ought to taste really good. It ought to be made well. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that the industry is still going to need to come to grips with as well. All right. Well, we've got some, like, pretty good experts here. So let's each ask a question of, of Eleanor. Um, let's start with Dan from Boston. Something general on the, on the top. You, you don't just ask questions out of the blue. Something just on the top of your, your tongue you've been, you've been dying to ask. you be asking me. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, um, I, I love the lushness of this Eden uh, cider. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really stuck here. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going? Kevin. So I, I'm coming from the ice beer perspective. Yeah. Are you actually plucking ice crystals out? Oh, that's okay. So, so what we're drinking here is my sparkling, not not my ice cider. So, for ice cider, ice cider is not like ice beer; it's like ice wine. So, and the big difference is, ice beer is you're concentrating with cold after fermentation, and so you're concentrating alcohol. With ice ciders and ice wines, you're concentrating before fermentation, so you're getting, you know, taking the fruit or the juice of the fruit, and you're concentrating the flavors and the sugars before fermentation. So, how do you make ice cider? Because you, you said something about you use the outdoors and natural temperatures. Right. Um, and there's some pictures of this on the website. If you hunt really hard, you might be able to find them. Um, so we press apples in December. And again, we're in northern Vermont at 1,400 feet elevation. Um, and we have long, cold winters. We have reliably below freezing temperatures for months. 
Um, so we press in December. We put the juice outside to freeze in big plastic containers. Um, and then it's like four to six weeks of just being outside. It could be minus 35 degrees. It could be plus 20. Um, and that sort of up and down, all below freezing, but up and down helps to concentrate the sugar and the flavors. And we draw off this incredibly delicious concentrated liquid. We lose 75 to 80% of the volume that we start with. And that delicious liquid is what we ferment, and it's a partial fermentation, right? So uh, yeast are eating the sugar and turning it into alcohol. If you let them go forever, you'd end up with something that was like 18 or 20% alcohol and no sugar, and that would not be the point. Um, so it's a partial fermentation, and we use cold temperature, again, to stop the fermentation. So we're looking for a yeast that's going to say, you know, give up and die quickly when it's cold um, so that we can... Um, stop the fermentation, leave a lot of residual sweetness. When you're eating ice cider, it's a great product, and we're going to serve that for our dinner tonight, too. I'll tell you what I'm thinking for the meal. This is not really what it's going to be, but I looked up at Normandy seems to be a place where they have good tradition of cider and pairing with food, and they were big on seafood. And I never really think about drinking cider with seafood. I don't know, John, did, have, have you thought about any cider pairings? Because I know you did the American Craft Beer Cookbook. It's, it's a tough one. I mean, yeah, no, it is a tough one. And I think it's really just uh, getting your nose into the cider and really seeing what aromas come off. We were talking earlier about uh, some ciders that might have like a bit of a citrus characteristic to it. So, you know, you might start thinking about shellfish a little bit. If you have citrus, if you have a lemon, you know, you put a little spritz of lemon on top of a nice piece of fresh fish. So, yeah, I, I, I could see that happening. But um, cider is really, it can mimic, I think, a, a lot of different foods and can really just sort of act as a really nice compliment uh, to what's on the plate. So um, while there are some really great pairings, uh, I think cider sort of serves as sort of like a, you know the, the, the beverage behind it kind of pushing the food flavors up a little bit more. Well, we're we're going to braise some vegetables in, in cider and uh, put it with farro and a few other things for dinner. What's, what's funny about pairings is uh, on the side of Redbird, it does offer pairing suggestions. And this is one one thing about some pairing suggestions. Often they're just a little, they're too broad. It says pasta nestled in a cream sauce, roasted pork loin. So that's what they su- suggest pairing with. But it doesn't really talk about, you know, techniques and everything. And, and the same thing as picking a good cider. I, I think you definitely need to go on the side of, of more information than less. And one reason we're having this conversation about how to label ciders and should there be a, a designation for quality ciders is that part of the cider week this weekend, cider week this weekend was was discussions about that. Is how do we let our customers? Our customers want the quality ciders. They don't want the mainstream. And 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 how do we? get them used to asking for it. And uh, I think this is a big conversation you guys are going to have, cider producers this summer and the next couple of years, you know, working as you guys, you know, grow the industry and everything. So, hey, we're going to take another short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Drinking cider all weekend with, with Cider Wick. It was an attempt to 
create some kind of English, you know, celebration of cider instead of turning into these intense talks and tastings with some of the better cider makers in uh, the Northeast. And uh, John Hall, who's, who's writing a great book, Tasting Cider, uh, was here all weekend. Eleanor Leisure from, from Eden, our buddy Dan Kochakian uh, from Ale Street News in Massachusetts, and uh, Kevin Heald, who runs uh, our favorite tasting shop and bottle shop. Malt mold in the Lower East Side. So we've been talking about a lot of different ciders. Uh, a few things have come up. Like, first of all, how do you label cider? How, how do you identify a quality cider? Because there's so many mainstream ciders that that some of us don't want to drink anymore. And uh, Eleanor brought up a few things, like using the term orchard-based. This, this idea of real cider has been tossed around. And we've been talking about how do you actually label ciders and whether it's dry or sweet or you know, if there's you know, acidic acid levels and all these things. So it's been a very interesting weekend, and we're trying to sum it all up. We've been here for an hour talking about cider, but we're starting over. We're, we, we, I messed up on the recording, so we're pretending we're doing the start over. So we're here, and we're going back to the first cider, which is, which is the Whetstone cider. And uh, Eleanor, just tell us why you picked this. We, we have a, a, a walk-in full of, of some of these great ciders that I've never tried. Uh, Crystal Halt from uh, Sirius Eats recommended a few including Redbird and uh, Wetstone. It's only the second time we've had it. So the world of cider is, is bigger than we think. And even in the last three years of, of Cider Week New York, we've been a big part of, we keep, we keep trying new ciders and people introducing them to us. So, Ellen, you, you went into our walk, and why did you pick the Whetstone uh, as one that we should taste on the air? So a couple reasons. Um, Jason MacArthur and his wife, Laura, make um, – they're the, the force behind Whetstone Cidery. They're in Vermont, my home state. Um, and I know that they're using the same quality of locally grown cider variety apples that um, I think are important to a great um, orchard-based cider. Um, he's a very careful cider maker, and it's a beautifully clean, delicious, um, citrusy, light, lightly carbonated um, cider with a teeny bit of uh, sugar added – um, in to just bring out the flavors of the fruit. So it's not sweet by any means, but it's um, um, just a, a delicious floral, citrusy kind of perfect summer sipping cider. Um, so I just saw it and was excited. Orchard Queen. All right. Well, this is we've been doing this all day, so we're all loopy. We've been drinking so many great ciders. And John Hall had a great question. It was about how to serve cider. Well, yeah, I, the cider industry, I think, is still, uh, while it's been around for a while, is really still starting to hit its uh, its stride here in the public consciousness. So I think people have a lot of questions. Should uh, Does good cider come in a can? Does it come in a bottle? Does it only come on draft? Uh, what type of glass is appropriate uh, for a cider? You see a lot of uh, ciders being served at bars these days in pint glasses. Um, is that the right drinking vessel for it or not? Do you use a, a wine glass with a stem? Uh, ice or not. Uh, some uh, places will insist on putting ice in their cider while, um, you know, while other uh, places won't. I think that there's a Where do you get ice in cider? Well, you actually put ice cubes in a cider, not like an ice cider uh, that, that Eleanor makes that we'll talk about, I'm sure, but, um, but more of actually taking cubes of ice, putting it into a pint glass and pouring uh, cider on top of the ice. There are places that do that, and I think that uh, unless there's going to be a general consensus or better education out there, uh, there's a lot of things that we really need to, to know about. And Eleanor, being in the in the industry, I'm sure can kind of enlighten us as to what kind of, what kind of drinking glass do we want uh, our cider to be in? Uh, what is the appropriate um, uh, uh, packaging method? Oh yeah, so. <laughs> uh, um, 
I, I'm partial to wine glasses myself, but I also really like, you know, I, I think since it's a lower alcohol beverage, not like a wine that's up around 12, 13%, um, most ciders are 6, 7, 8%, um, that those really nice 12 ounce, um, you're going to know the name better than I will, the ones that go like this with the feet oh, like on the them. A tulip glass. A tulip yeah. glass that you would use for a, a high quality, slightly higher alcohol beer. Yeah. Um, is a really nice serving glass for cider. Um, I think if you put it in a big pint glass, that's um, uh, uh, you know you're losing the opportunity that a tulip glass gives you to capture the aromas, um, which I think is a really important part of cider drinking when you're drinking a real cider from real apples that has real apple character. It's not just some sweet fizzy um, soda-like beverage. And then what about serving cider on draft? Uh, the other day, uh, one of the cider makers said he didn't think that cider should touch metal, which is what the many draft lines are made of. Have you ever heard that before? No, I haven't. <laughs> I, think, I think everything can be served on draft, and I'm a big f- proponent of it because it's environmentally um, and cost-wise makes a big difference. So I had a really good sparkling rosé last night on draft at a nice restaurant near. There, there is one difference. Rosemary's in the West Village. All right, go for it. One, there is one difference. Both wine and cider have much higher acidity than beer, so that you have to take care of the lines very carefully. And when, when people are putting cider on draft in beer lines and they're not conscious of the fact that you've got much higher acidity, you can have real problems. So, um, it, you know, for all of you people who are thinking about doing that, get educated on the kind of draft system you need to, to serve wine and cider properly. All right. And Kevin from Malton Mold. Kevin, you, you were talking before about uh, the super strong beers and, 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 and cider. So why don't you ask your question? Great. I was saying that from a beer context, I'm a fan of the arms race that's going on with hops and high alcohol. And I was uh, saying that no one would consider Cider Maker a sellout if they decided to start making a very high ABV cider. I was wondering if Eleanor had considered that. Um, so I do make a very high ABV cider, but it's not from the same point of view. <laughs> um, uh, there's a reason that um, post-fermentation... Um, freeze distilling is fundamentally um, n- not particularly legal in this country because you're concentrating all of the really toxic um, al- alcohols, not just the the ethanol that we like to, to experience on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the big reasons for prohibition was that people were doing that to their ciders called Applejack, and it was making them go blind and so abandon what, their families. What, I don't so. understand. What, what, what were they doing that was so bad that makes it bad? So, so just this freeze distilling, right? So if you ferment something and then you freeze it and you remove the ice and you've concentrated the alcohol, you've concentrated all the bad alcohols as well as all the good alcohols. So it just, just makes it a little more toxic. Um, the, the high ABV cider that I make, 16% ABV, is made in the style of an aperitif wine. So, again, it's the same concentration process that we use for ice cider where we're freezing it before fermentation. We're getting the sugar level up. Sugar, so you freeze before fermentation. Yeah, and that's what – if you get the high sugar, that means you can get to higher alcohol, alcohol through fermentation. Um, and we let that that particular product, that the that particular cider, the, the fermentation goes all the way to dry. It's sixteen percent all natural, and then we infuse it with herbs and botanicals. We have an herbal and a bitter, and they're really in the style of European aperitif wines for cocktails, kind of like a Lillet, kind of like a Campari or an Aperol. Um, so herbal and bitter. No, it's nice, and you recommend serving it on the rocks with some fruit. 
Yep, yep. And the bitter makes a great Manhattan. Um, it plays really nicely with blood orange um, and uh, uh, fun fun to play around with at cocktail hour. All right. Well, we're drinking cider all day and talking about a lot of things, but I'm, st- I'm still fascinated by, by what you've been doing, Eleanor, and uh, I... We're so used to seeing people with machinery and technology. And earlier, Kevin had mentioned Astorias in Spain, which is a traditional cider-making region. But I just can't believe that you just work with nature. You're, you're, you're putting things out in the cold so it freezes. And uh, are there other people doing that, like working with nature to, 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 make, to make their products? Because everyone is so, – there's so much technology. There's so much industrialization. I don't want to name names, but I, these guys came to sell me cider in a can from Maine. And they really didn't have a good answer for me. And it turned out that, that it's made in Boston somewhere, in some factory, and it's cider in a can. And uh, that's not what we want. We really want it to be in touch with people, growing apples, working with their neighbors' apples. And for some people, it's controversial. I mean, what's the big deal? People are afraid that, that they're going to find out that not everyone's growing apples and that, that the industry is still in the early stages and it needs a lot more support. Um, what's the big deal? So... Uh, <laughs> actually, I don't have an objection to cider in a can. Um, I think, I think, um, you know, there, there will always be all kinds of different players in the cider market. I think for people who are excited about real cider from real apples that are grown locally, that, um, you know, that's what gives you the character of the flavor, not a bunch of flavorings and sugar that's added afterwards. Um, you know, that's, that's what really makes the difference. And, um, uh, uh, you know, Uncle John's out in Michigan makes cider in a can that is really quaffable, made all from his own apples and those of his Michigan neighbors. And, uh, you know, that's a great gateway, get started, summer, light, drink it all day kind of cider. All right. Well, hey, what we've been doing here, a lot of talks. We're going to edit a bunch of this stuff out. But I just wanted to keep the conversation going. We, we've had three different ciders, uh, including Whetstone and Eden and uh, Redbird. And let's just wrap this up. John, do you want to give any comments about your book and what you learned this weekend? Uh, the book will be out in 2015 called Tasting Cider, and it's going to be geared towards the uh, consumer that wants to know more about this, uh, this great beverage. And I think that we're really at a very cool part of the cider history in the United States. I had fallen off for a while, but uh, it's it's really making a very, very strong comeback for a number of really great reasons. We've tasted three really great examples today of um, uh, of great cider, and I think that there's even more to come. And as long as people appreciate it, yeah, we're going to be in good shape. And did you learn anything from the weekend at Ciderwick uh, that's, that's influenced the book that you're writing? Yeah, it, it really, the, the, this whole weekend and, and, and all the folks that you brought in, Jimmy, this weekend uh, really shows the great diversity of cider that's out there that uh, different cider makers can have different interpretations on the same beverage. And it's really, uh, it was great to be able to sit with them and to, uh, you know, meet them face-to-face in such a, an intimate venue, uh, which, you know, your restaurant always does uh, when we come here. And um, it, it just, for me, it, it just highlighted the diversity. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for coming out, John. Kevin from Alton Mold, anything else you want to say? Thanks for having me. This has been great. Do love your shop, man. The ultimate tasting shop, Malton Mold. And uh, Dan Kochakian from uh, Ailes Street News in Massachusetts. Yeah, I just have one question for Eleanor. I just realized sitting here listening to all this with the small craft cider people, is there the same feeling as in the beer business where it's an us against them, you know, small cider makers as opposed to the big monster companies? 
Is, um, it, is it a constant struggle, in other words? You know? it's, it's a constant subject of discussion, um, and there are certainly people in the business who feel it is very much an us versus them, and then there are others of us who feel like, you know, it's there'll always be that push and pull in the market, and there are, you know, upwards of 360 million people in the country, and right now, craft cider is, like, real orchard-based cider is a teeny, weeny, weeny little piece, right? I think cider overall is maybe 2.5% of the beer market, um, and most of that is five big brands. Um, and so the rest of us are like, we'd be really happy if we, you know, as a group got to 1%. That would be like, we would all be rich. <laughs> so um, so that's, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. All right, guys, thanks, everyone, for coming on. Uh, this is a special pre-record, June 2014. We'll go back and edit out a little bit. Thanks a lot, Jack. Bye. Thank you.